All right. Our sermon this morning is taken from Mark chapter 6. We'll be reading um, 14 through 29. Uh, so it's not in the bulletin. So the title of it is A Model of Boldness for the Church. A Model of Boldness for the Church. You know, as I was preparing this message, I, I realized that words really have consequences. Uh, we'll see that not only in uh, what John the Baptist is saying, but also in what Herod says. And I think about how that applies even today in that words have consequences. Uh, I've seen some of the uh, presidential candidates and the debates they've had, and every little word that they say can, can be taken a different way, and, and their words have consequences. If they're not careful, uh, they can be canceled. Um, even, even pastors, uh, when they preach the word, have to uh, be very careful in what they're, they're saying, that it's truth, that it's not false, that it's not blasphemous, because uh, words have consequences. Even us, even online, right? If we want to stand for the truth, be prepared to be canceled. Be prepared to have thick skin because of the onslaught of unhinged opposition that sometimes comes our way. So it's it's no wonder why people might prefer to just keep to themselves and keep their opinions to themselves as the world rages on. Because after all, shouldn't we attempt to, as the word says, live at peace with all men? Well, yes, but that same passage also says, if possible, after abhorring that which is evil and holding fast to that which is good. The gospel and the word of God is offensive to those who are perishing, but that doesn't mean that the proclamation of Christ is to be silenced or that there is a compromise uh, that has a more maybe palatable uh, model of giving the gospel. But unfortunately, much of that goes on in our mainstream churches today under the guise of love and tolerance, all in the name of inclusion. So the foolishness of the world then continues to uh, proclaim itself loudly from all different angles, while the immovable truth of God's word is not heard as much. The church is silent, while the world becomes more and more brazen in its ideologies and sin. But what would happen if the church really stood up for the truth and boldly proclaimed the gospel of Christ without the fear of man? As I said before, words have consequences, but as Christ himself said in John chapter 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Take heart, because in the world you will have tribulation, and I have overcome the world. And this is what John the Baptist here, we'll see in our passage, is facing uh, this morning. He brings forth for us a model of boldness for the church. So let's read together then Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, 
John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and said, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Amen. Would you pray with me and let's ask the Lord to be with us as, as his word is proclaimed. Father, Lord, as we come now to your word, we want to hear from you. Lord, we want to receive the word with faith. Lord, we want to be able to have it sanctify our hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do this very thing, this, this good thing that you are here with us now as you have promised to be. Thank you for your word. We pray that it would only increase all the more in us as we decrease. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, it's notable in the book of Mark that there's only two passages that really don't deal explicitly with Christ. Mark 1, 4 through 8, and our passage here this morning are the ones where both accounts speak of John the Baptist. And both of them sort of foreshadow Christ. In the first chapter, in chapter 1, John comes onto the scene as what Isaiah 40 says in the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And here he is the forerunner of Christ's message and his ministry, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but that the one who was to come after him would be mightier than he, baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Here in chapter 6, we find John in prison, presented by Mark to be really the first to suffer and to die for the sake of Christ. So yeah, he is here the forerunner of Christ's death, and it's really not hard to see the parallels that are here between John and Christ in, in um, life and death. <clears throat> Both of them are executed by political tyrants who 
fear them. They, they go back and forth as to what to do with them, but finally they give in to social pressure and have them executed. In John's case, um, Herod consents to Herodias, and in Jesus' case, Pilate then acquiesces to the mob. Both Jesus and John die silently as victims of political intrigue and political corruption. Just as Isaiah prophesied, saying, as a sheep goes before its shearers is silent. But perhaps most obviously, they both die as righteous and innocent victims. Now, yes, of course, John himself was a sinner indeed, but Mark notes in our passage that even Herod saw him as a righteous and a holy man. In fact, Jesus himself proclaimed in Matthew 11, saying, Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But there is more that John's martyrdom does than foreshadowing Christ's crucifixion. I want you to see here that it also underscores the consequences of boldly preaching Christ in a world that just outright hates the truth and hates those who stand for it. And so, while it causes us to soberly take into consideration the cost of being a Christian in a hostile world, we look beyond our circumstances, right? We, we look um, past our fears to focus on the truth, joining really in what Paul says in Romans 8, saying that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so we, what can we exactly take from this passage that doesn't explicitly mention Christ? I mean, how, how do we see Jesus in this passage? Lord willing, this morning, I'm hoping that we'll see that the church can be bold in the gospel, even in the face of imprisonment and death, because Christ's death and resurrection has secured for us our salvation, and now all things are subject to him as he reigns over them. So we're going to see this modeled in John the Baptist this morning in three points. We're going to look at Christ proclaimed, and then we're going to look at Christ rejected, and then Christ victorious. Um, all right, so this is going to sound a little bit strange, but we're actually going to start a few verses into our passage in verse 17. It's kind of like that movie that you, you might watch, and, and you're presented with the ending first, right? And then the rest of the movie explains that ending. That's sort of what this um, passage is today. So we're going to start in verse 17, which will give us insight and context to verses 1, or 14 through 16. So let's begin then by looking at Christ's proclaim as seen in verses 17 through 20. <clears throat> now before this passage, we, we heard of John in chapter 1, in verse 14, where it's briefly mentioned that, that John was arrested. What was he arrested for? Well, we learn here in chapter 6 exactly what it was. John was preaching um, Christ and the repentance of sin. And his message wasn't just for the common folk, it was for uh, the kings as well, so for great and small. And he didn't speak in generalities either. Um, it's good to note here that in order for there to be true repentance, there has to be a real understanding of sin. And sometimes there is an understanding of sin, but it needs to be called out not only to highlight the seriousness of sin against a holy God, but 
also with the hopes of bringing about repentance. So in the case of Herod here, John is boldly calling out a very specific and a very public sin. Uh, Herod had married his brother's wife. Now, if you know something of the line of Herod, you know that it's about as twisted as a slinky with two minutes with a toddler, right? It's, these are really, uh, this family's messed up. Um, this isn't the King Herod. This is the son of Herod. He's called Herod Antipas. He's a tetrarch of Perea and Galilee. Uh, he, um, yeah, he's, he's son of the, the Herod the Great, as Chris mentioned in, in Sunday school. He uh, attempted to have all the, the boys under the age of, of two killed to be able to squelch Christ. Herod the Great had ten wives. All right, so this is where you're going to have to hang with me because this is going to leave your head kind of spinning a little bit. Um, I'll try to go slow, but Antipas, okay, he was born from Herod's fourth wife. He was half-brother to Aristobulus, who was the son of Herod's second wife. Okay, fourth wife, second wife, they're half-brothers, they're related. Aristobulus had a daughter named Herodias. Yep, the same Herodias that Antipas marries. Except, gets better, she didn't marry him first. She was actually married to another half-brother, Philip, from Herod the Great's third wife. So we had fourth, second, third wife, all half-brothers. Um, but she divorced Philip so that she could be with Antipas. It's kind of a power move so that she could gain more prestige and, and more power. <clears throat> so that's Herodias and her marriage to Antipas. Antipas over here, uh, he was, himself was married to the daughter of King Eratos of Nebatea, which bordered Perea and was part of Herod Antipas's territory. So Perea and Nebatea, they're allies, so you can understand why that marriage was, was formed. But he foolishly divorces the uh, king's daughter and goes and marries uh, Herodias. So she's not only his brother's wife, but really she is Antipas's niece. This is really messed up. Um, but this was also very public. It was a very brazen uh, violation of the Jewish laws of sexual relations that you find in Leviticus 18 and 20. So this was a sin that John was rightly calling out. But we also know that John would have been proclaiming the hope of forgiveness as well. Uh, and that was his and Christ's message, right? Was to repent, to believe in the gospel because the kingdom of God was at hand. Now, I would think it's understandable if someone might think, well, why would you attempt to proclaim the truth to somebody that's so high up in, in government, somebody that's corrupt and so far gone in sin. Uh, I mean, John, you could have saved yourself some serious opposition. Uh, ultimately, you could have saved your life. Well, I want you to see here, though, that, that John's fearless example shows us the mercy of God, right, and how far it goes out. <clears throat> shows us the grace that, that he has to all sinners, offering the message of hope to repent while it is still called today. <clears throat> so I want you to be encouraged here, though, for a moment. 
pause, be encouraged that we haven't gone beyond the grace of our God, right? This message this morning, yeah, it's for sinners, high-profile sinners like Herod and Herodias, uh, our national, state, and local leaders, online social media influencer, the LBGTQ community, sinners just like you and me, right? Salvation's effectualness then goes to the outermost. But let us also never think, right, that those outside of Christ are so far gone that they don't have ears for the gospel. After all, he saved you, right? Now, if we're sitting here going, well, yeah, but I'm not as bad as those sinners, though, that you just mentioned. Are you sure about that? Let me take you back to what I said a minute ago. In order for there to be true repentance, there has to be a true understanding of our sin. So, if we're thinking that, this is an area that, of spiritual pride, perhaps, that we need to evaluate and repent of. We are not better off than anyone else without Christ. When scripture says that there is none righteous, no, not one, uh, it means that there's none righteous, no, not anybody. It really means it. So how can we say that we're any better than the worst of sinners? So point is, let us show grace as grace has been abundantly shown to us in Christ as we boldly share the gospel as we do it in love, remembering the forgiveness that's been given to us and the sin that's in our own hearts. Unfortunately, though, we have examples here of what happens when the seed of the gospel falls on hardened ground or on rocky ground. Um, Back in chapter 4 of Mark is where uh, we have the parable of the sower explained. uh, What happens when the gospel is proclaimed? To sinners. Well, Jesus explains that, uh, that one of four things. People either immediately reject the message because of their hardened hearts. That's the seed falling on uh, hardened ground, right? Second, the message will joyfully be received, but then it's quickly um, turned away when any opposition arises on account of the word. This is the seed falling on the rocky ground. Third, going to reject the gospel because the cares and the desires of the world are more important to them. That's the seed falling on the thorny ground. But then lastly, to be gladly receiving the word and bearing much fruit, the seed falling on fertile ground. Now we see Herodias as an example of the message falling on, on hardened soil. Look at verse 19 again. <clears throat> it says that, And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. It wasn't even a brief consideration of the message. It was offensive to her. She did not like being called out for her adulterous actions. She took this very seriously to the point she wanted the messenger dead. One commentary put it this way. I I thought it was good. Uh, Herodias felt that the only place where her marriage certificate could safely be written was on the back of the death warrant of John the Baptist. That guy is gone. If the truth of his message is gone, I'm not accountable. 
You know, sometimes those who are most offended at the gospel are the ones who know it's true, but they don't want to believe it. Because, I mean, why be offended at a message if it has no validation to it? Why believe in a message if there's no validity? Well, Herod and Antipas was, on the other hand, he was more like the rocky soil. Look at verse 20. It says, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So despite being a self-serving and, and cunning ruler, verse 20 here indicates that Herod actually feared uh, and, and respected John because it says that he considered him to be a holy and a righteous man. And he actually protected John from Herodias <clears throat> from, by putting him into prison. Now, doing that um, accomplished two things. It sort of pacified Herodias, but at the same time, it kept John in prison from publicly calling uh, Herod out on his uh, own sin. But what, what is so mind-boggling about this is that we read in the second half of uh, verse 20 that Herod was greatly perplexed when he heard John and, and yet received it gladly. Now, this word perplexed, <clears throat> in the Greek it's apareo. It means to be at a loss. Uh, to be uncertain about something, uh, something's generating a lot of questions. So this perplexity surely arose from the conflict that existed between his fear and respect of John, but also his complicated relationship with Herodias, his, his wife, and the, um, how wrong that was. And yet, even with this perplexity that came from listening to John, Mark says that he heard him gladly. Now, gladly here has the idea of agreeing with what he's saying, not, not being forced to agree with it, but receiving it and, and agreeing with that. Why is that? How, how can something like that happen? Well, we see at this point, Herod Antipas still has a conscience that hasn't been severed. It's still alive within him. And even with this wretched state of, of heart that he's in and the sin that he was involved in, his, his heart, yeah, still hadn't been severed. I want you to see here where Herod is. This is a dangerous place to find oneself. To marvel at and to gladly receive the gospel, but only the parts that really fancy us. In the culture of being able to identify as something or identify with someone or a group, Christianity seems to be an option for some. In the eight years that I have lived down here in what's considered the Bible Belt in the South, it's clear that, in general, people want to identify with being a Christian, to identify as a good person and the morality that's associated with Christianity, but they don't really want to deny oneself or pick up the cross and truly follow Christ and do all that that takes. <clears throat> but without Christ... This identity is really hard to try to keep up. It requires the suppression of conscience in order to keep hidden the cherished sins of the heart. It's wanting the truth to set you free, but not letting that truth come in and have its way within your own soul. Uh, one of the commentaries I read said <clears throat> that, um, yeah, the truth will set you free, but first, the truth has to make you miserable. 
Yes, the gospel of Christ is good news. But in order for that good news of Christ to be good, it has to be an understanding of our sin and there, there's something wrong with our own heart first. And so you see, our identity is in Christ. It's not in ourselves. In fact, scriptures tell us that we are to die to ourselves in order to live in Christ. So we see here in this example of Herod, uh, Christ and the call to repentance repeatedly and boldly being proclaimed to him by John, even while John's in prison. But unfortunately, Herod is about to make a wretched choice as we see that he fears man more than he fears God. And so this brings us into our second point, Christ rejected, as seen in verses 21 through 28. But we are told here in verse 21, an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday threw a banquet for his A-list group. Those, uh, his nobles, military commanders, leading men of Galilee, this was no small affair. <clears throat> These indulgent parties were very common. They were even expected, especially on Herod's birthday, which is why this is an opportunity for Herodias, who has been waiting, planning, scheming, biding her time for just the right moment. She has the desire. Now she has the opportunity. Brothers and sisters, note, it is a deadly combination to the soul. Whenever you have that desire to sin intertwined with the opportunity to sin. Be thankful to our merciful Father when God withholds this poisonous union from happening in our own lives, right? Sometimes we might have the opportunity to sin, but we lack the desire. Praise God for that. Other times we have the desire, but we lack the opportunity to fall headlong into sin. Praise God for his mercies, right? But here Herodias, she's always had that murderous desire She's been waiting perfectly, or waiting patiently for that opportunity to fulfill that barbaric lust to kill John. She wants it so badly that she is willing to subject her own daughter to corrupt acts that are way beneath that of royalty. Herodias, uh, we're told, she waits until that point. She knows it's coming in the party when Herod and his guests are a little tipsy from the feasting. And she sends her daughter to perform a dance before the entire court. Now we know from Jewish historical writings, especially from the historian Josephus, that the name of her daughter was Salome. We also know, and it's readily understood, that this was no respectable dance that she performed. We're not talking about beautiful ballet. We're talking about purposely seductive, rated R, scandalous type dancing before the entire court. A kind of dance that was usually reserved for the professional prostitutes that would come in later. But she did a solo dance. This performance, Mark indicates in his word that it pleased Herod, but perhaps more critically, it pleased his guests. They were like, "Mm mm-hmm, Herod, you demand. 
And Herod was looking pretty good at this time. Herod was so full of himself and so pleased. This verse 22 says, For Herodias' daughter came in and danced, and she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, give you up to half of my kingdom. Herod so impulsively, having much to drink, tells Salome, ask me anything you want, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. Now, that literally does not mean that. I mean, he didn't even have the authority from Rome to be able to give any part of his kingdom away. But this is the same language that's used by King Ahasuerus when he spoke to Queen Esther. What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half of my kingdom. What does that mean? What that meant was, no, seriously, ask something big of me. Ask and see if I won't do it. And this, too, would have pleased Herod's guests who were there. Well, we see in verse 24, Salome left to inquire of her mother. Herodias didn't even have to think twice about what she wanted. Give me the head of John the Baptist. It's interesting to note that when Salome returned, she added her own demented twist to this and said, yeah, give it to me on a platter. The same thing that the scrumptious food was offered. It's very demented. It's very twisted. We shouldn't overlook that subtle reminder here. What a sober reminder. Just how children can take the sins of the parents to a whole new level, a whole new generation taking sins higher than the previous generation. And that should sober us up as parents in that which we do in front of our children that they they see and and keeping a a check on our own hearts, right? And what we are passing along to our children. Well, we see here then in, in verse 26, Herod then is exceedingly sorry. No, not that. Anything, oh no. What have I done? Words have consequences. We just got done in Sunday school talking about um, vows and oaths. um, Civil magistrates making oaths like this, doing it uh, here. We uh, see Herod foolishly doing that in front of the entire court. But because of, of that vow he made, because he feared man, He didn't want to break his word to Salome. He didn't want to look bad in front of his guests, and he was afraid of what they might think if he reneged on his vow. Oh, he's not a man of his word. John and his message then were immediately denied. Christ was rejected. Herod feared man instead of God, and his true colors were shown. Was not pretty. Words have consequences. But look at verse 27. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, and he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. John's immediately and abruptly beheaded in prison. It seems like such an anticlimactic end to him. Uh, 
the one that Jesus called the greatest man ever born of a woman, executed as a party favor. Shocking and disturbing end to this man, but a reminder to us, words, yes, have consequences. Very real consequences of being devoted completely to Christ. Except we should not view this as a tragic end to this honorable saint of God. For here, ironically, John, who was in prison on earth, has now been set free from his sin and is now with his heavenly father. Contrast this with Herod, who already had his reward on earth, but in this passage he is now imprisoned by his sin, imprisoned by a a captive guilty conscience of what he had just done to John. So we see here that the king heard, rejected, and then he killed a messenger of God who was completely innocent, righteous in his message and actions. Really, again, a foretaste of what was going to happen to our Savior. But then this leads us to our third and final point, where Christ is victorious. Verses 14 through 16. All right, so track with me. John has just been beheaded. His disciples are devastated. Herod is now the man of the hour in front of his A-list. Herodias is basking in the success of her well-thought-out plan. She's been, uh, she, she's gotten her revenge. So how exactly is this a victory for Christ? To see this, we need to go to the end of the story, which is at the beginning of our passage, verse 14. It says that King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Well, what was it that King Herod had heard? Well, to find that, we have to go back up to verse uh, 12 and 13. Here's what it says. So they, meaning the disciples, went out from Christ and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So... What was it that he had heard? He heard the same exact message that he thought he had destroyed. It's back. He hadn't gotten rid of it. So then look at verses 15 and 16 again. Others said, he is Elijah. Others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So troubled was Herod with his guilty conscience that he couldn't even see the truth of who Christ really was. Yes, there was erroneous speculation on who he was. Um, John the Baptist did back from the dead. Oh, but with power now, Elijah, another prophet. Oh, but Herod, he thought that he knew. He was still imprisoned by that guilty conscience and it wouldn't leave him alone. He doesn't say, John, who was beheaded, was raised. He said, John, I beheaded. One commentary noted that this word I is emphatic in the Greek. 
It suggests that Herod was saying it over and over again, almost driving himself insane. His respectful fear that he had of John in verse 20 is now a superstitious, fearful, paranoid fear that John was somehow back with miraculous powers and he reasoned only only somebody could come back from the dead who who could do that. But note that even though he thought a holy and a righteous person came from back from the dead, he still didn't repent. The message of Christ was not silenced by the king. The message of Christ was not silenced by his father when he tried killing off all the boys two years and younger. It wasn't even thwarted by John the Baptist's death. Springs to mind in Psalm 2. Uh, Chris mentioned this in Sunday school as well, where it says, Oh, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is Christ victorious over all kings, over all nations, over all peoples on earth, including you and me. And this is what gives the church boldness and confidence seen in John to proclaim that good news of the gospel, the truth of who we are as sinners, and the truth of who Christ is as our Redeemer. Boldness in the face of imprisonment. But words have consequences, right? Look what happened to John. I mean, he literally lost his head over this. And unfortunately, many, perhaps churches in our mainstream culture, cannot get past this untimely death of John the Baptist. They might say, Man, what a terrible model for building up a church. All that, you know what? John, you still didn't win over the the soul of, of the king to Christ. I think you were too bold. I think you were too honest. You know, John, you probably needed to soften the truth a little bit more so that you could have reached so many more for Christ. Maybe get some updated clothes, too, and stop eating grasshoppers. It's not very relatable. People don't get that. No? The church today could learn much from John for standing for truth and preaching the truth without being ruled by the fear of man. Where would the church be today if she was in tune with the victory that's already been declared by God the Father and accomplished in Christ, unashamedly proclaiming the truth the way that John and Jesus did in their ministries. But yeah, uh, 
Not every person that you speak to about Christ is going to come to Christ. Not everyone will come to him. In fact, perhaps the majority might not even do so. But we, we remember that his word does not return void. And through his spirit, he gives us the words to speak. John spoke the truth. Oh, but it wasn't understood by Herod. Oh, uh, maybe, maybe he should have taken a couple more classes on apologetics. Maybe he should have gone through some, some courses on eloquent speaking. Is, is that it? No. It's because of the hardness of his heart. John was doing his faithful duty in proclaiming the truth. In some ways, Herod was very close to the truth. But being close to the truth doesn't result in being faithful. It doesn't result in faith. It's interesting, he even believed in the concept of the resurrection. He just believed in the wrong person. I direct you to the last verse of our passage. Verse 29. When his disciples heard of it, or the death of John, they came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. End of the verse. Okay? That's the end of of John the Baptist. There is no, note, there is no, and on the third day, God raised John from the dead. Uh, nope. This is the difference, you see, between John and Christ. Christ, God incarnate, was that mightier one than I, as John said, who came to save sinners and, to, and was raised in victory over sin and death and is now seated victoriously at the right hand of God. All things are subject to him. John was a sinner like you and I. <clears throat> he did not die for us. He was not resurrected for us. So, yes, even though Herod believed in this concept of the resurrection, he had it all wrong. In fact, he kind of unwittingly announced to himself a similar message in Peter, or in Acts 2, where Peter announced to, um, to Jerusalem, this Jesus whom you crucified... God raised up and made him both Lord and Christ. This message was from God, not from a guilty, misled conscience. Herod's proclamation led to worldly sorrow. Peter's proclamation, it cut to the heart. It led to repentance. It led to those believing in Christ. It led to freedom. <clears throat> Christ then was victorious over sin and death, reigning as king in, in our souls. So the question then goes out again yet today. What Peter said, you who have crucified Jesus with your sin, who do you say that he is? Will you say that, uh, you know, what's popular today, that, well, yeah, he probably didn't even exist. But even if he did, yeah, he might have been some respectable guy with good morals, good teaching. Or would you say, well, yeah, he, he is whomever I, I fancy him to be, taking only what you like of him, but leaving behind sin and conviction, guilt, being accountable. If there's no Christ, there's no accountability. Or will you proclaim with Peter, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So the same powerful message of the, the gospel then goes out today both to believers and unbelievers, for us both. So hear the word that's being proclaimed, even this morning, to the good news to sinners, the forgiveness of Christ, who was crucified, buried, raised on the third day. The 
victorious over sin and death and Satan. Do not harden your hearts as Herod did in rejecting Christ completely. But humbly come to Christ with penitent hearts, confessing sin and seeking forgiveness, finding our eternal life victorious in the Lord. Words have consequences. <clears throat> Christ's words. The consequence is eternal life. So the church, yes, church, we can go forth then boldly by God's grace with the help of his spirit and proclaim this to our friends, to our neighbors, <clears throat> without being ruled by the fear of man. I'll leave you with the second half of Psalm 2. Uh, it addresses kings, but it addresses all of us because until we're in Christ, we're kings of our own hearts. So this applies to everyone. It says this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Let's pray.